Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something else. In 1973, the BBC made a documentary called the ape man that never was. Seventy years ago, in a laboratory setting far removed from that of the Department of Geodesy and Geophysics in Cambridge. It looked at one of the most famous scientific discoveries ever made. The archaeological findings that supposedly proved Britain was home to the missing link between apes and humans. For 40 years, these fossils have been considered a scientific breakthrough. The only problem, the whole thing was a fraud. People wanted to know who was behind it and how they pulled it off. It was possible for some person or persons unknown to embark on an elaborate piece of forgery in the field of human evolution. And because the scientific tests of today were then not available, it was possible for them to get away with it. Who was the hoaxer? Why did they do it? That's Miles Russell, a British archaeologist and university lecturer. That becomes the major attention of the press. And you see throughout the 1970s and 80s, lots of different books, lots of different TV programs and documentaries made about the potential forge. Who would perpetuate such a hoax and why is one of the great mysteries of our times. We will now go in search of history to scrutinize the hoax of the ages. People were obsessed with figuring out who was behind the scam, and there were plenty of suspects. Some people suspected it was one of the many British scientists who built their careers by supporting the Piltdown Man findings. Others thought the fraud was so clever that only a truly brilliant mind could have pulled it off. Perhaps the same mind who had invented Sherlock Holmes? You've got Arthur Conan Doyle, the author living nearby, we know that he's interested in fakes and forgeries. So all these different theories have been brought up. And if you look at Piltdown as a one-off, as one single discovery, one single hoax, then yet any one of those names is ultimately plausible. If you were somebody and you were popping in 1912, basically you were under suspicion. But there was one man who stuck out. One man who had invested more into the legacy of the Piltdown man than anyone else a county solicitor who had first brought the discovery to light. A solicitor? Meaning like a lawyer? Really? Scheming, plotting, lying, deceiving. Really just to improve his own social standing. I'm Alzo Slade, and this is Cheat, the podcast where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, what happens when science fact gets confused with science fiction? Let's take a trip back in time, to over a hundred years ago. This is a time when people were rocking waistcoats, corsets, and riding horse carriages. In Britain, this was known as the Edwardian era, named after the reign of King Edward II. 
The Edwardian age has been remembered for excess and elegance. But in reality, most people were broke and lived in dire poverty. Even the middle class struggled to get ahead. A young man named Charles Dawson was working in the southeast of England. By day, Charles was a solicitor, but his real passion was science. But he had a great interest in archaeology uh, and discover and geology and, and fossil hunting. Really, as a as a child, he'd been on the, the beaches of Hastings in East Sussex, picking up fossils. And he was very much enmeshed in local society, in, in village community in Sussex. All Charles wanted was to be a respected archaeologist. But he knew it wasn't going to be easy. Back then, who you knew and what family you came from was all that mattered. Charles worked in law just like his dad, and he didn't have any connections to the scientific community. It was going to be hard for him to break through, but Charles was obsessed with raising his family status. And perhaps there was a competitive element in his childhood that two of his brothers went to university. He never did. He followed his father's profession age 16. Perhaps there was a sense of, of wanting to prove himself or trying to be extra competitive against them, trying to raise his family up beyond the class structure that they're in to a whole new level of society. And he wanted to use scientific discovery to make his mark. In 1884, at just 21, Dawson caught his first break. He became a fellow at the Geological Society. Charles's foot was in the door, but he was still a small fish in a big pond. Dawson is very much an anomaly. He hasn't got the right background. Some of the early meetings at the Geological Society, he wasn't even allowed to speak because he wasn't a member of the society. He wasn't part of that clique. Now, just imagine, you're excited to be a part of this geological society, but when you walk in there, everybody looking at you like, bro, who are you? And don't you say nothing, just sit in the corner. But within a few years, Charles started identifying more and more archaeological finds. The fossils and artifacts were actually uncovered by workmen who were digging through gravel pits to mend potholes. But Charles Dawson took all the credit. People in the Geological Society, they wouldn't expect to hear who had made the finds. They wouldn't care. You know, these are nameless members of the working classes. Their role is to make the discoveries, and they're bringing those to him to be described. Nowadays, if someone made an archaeological discovery, experts would want to know exactly who found it, the precise location, and the conditions of the ground. This wasn't the case back then, though. What mattered then was who brought the findings to the attention of scientists. And that's exactly what Charles Dawson became known for. He obtained the nickname of the Wizard of Sussex because the you know he, he was finding really quite incredible archaeological artifacts and sites, all within about a 20-mile radius of his home in East Sussex. Then, in 1908, Charles Dawson, a.k.a. the Wizard of Sussex, found something that would change the face of biological science, something that seemed to be the missing link and proved that upright apes evolved into early humans, the Piltdown Man. Because it was uh, skeletal remains, part of a skull, part of a jaw. The skull had very human characteristics, a very enlarged brain case. The jaw was very ape-like, but the teeth in it had very sort of human wear patterns, uh, sort of rotary mo uh, chewing motions to them rather than the classics sort of ape uh, profile in the teeth. 
Dawson had claimed to find the remains just outside of a village called Piltdown in East Sussex. So that explains the name. Evolutionary science was still very much in its infancy then. But here was a find that not only showed human evolving from an ape, but it was from Sussex. You know, it's from southern England. Much of their continental brethren were described uh, British archaeologists as, as pebble hunters because all they were finding in Britain were struck tools. You know, there's evidence of human origins or not human, earlier human activity. But here is something that presented British science way and above anything else that was happening on the continent. Charles Dawson wasn't just collecting pebbles. He knew he'd discovered something big, but he also knew he was still the dude in the back of the room who wasn't allowed to speak. He was only an amateur. He needed someone with more status to support the Piltdown man findings. So Charles contacted his buddy, Arthur Smith Woodward, who was a curator at the National History Museum of London. Although Charles Dawson has been making these finds, he's not in a great position always to report them. He needs to get people on his side. He needs to get a battery of scientists to say, this is good. I think this is important. I will promote this. I will stake my career, effectively, on this being an important find. Arthur Woodward traveled down to Sussex, and the two led an excavation at the site where Piltdown Man was found. They wanted to discover more archaeological material that would help Piltdown Man be recognized as a significant find and something worth investing in. Charles and Arthur spend months on their hands and knees covered in soil. Dawson and Woodward don't really have very much time. They've got the summer, effectively a summer vacation, summer holidays, to do the investigation. It's a relatively small team. They hire a local labourer by the fantastic name of Venus Hargreaves, uh, who's already in his uh, sort of late 50s. He does all the soil moving. So he's sort of digging a large amount of soil. And what Woodward and Dawson do, they're just sieving. So they're just sieving huge amounts of soil to find objects. After months of this poor fellow, Venus, digging through all this soil, the team hit the jackpot. They came across a series of tools that helped paint a picture of Piltdown Man's life. There was a series of flint tools that seemed like they had been made for hunting and some animal bones which looked like hippo teeth. It suggests something of great antiquity because there haven't been hippos living in Britain for some significant time. But it also suggests an early human who's perhaps hunting these animals and is creating tools to kill and dismember them. At the time, they didn't have the technology that we have now to accurately determine the age of bones and artifacts. They make a vague estimation. I mean, there's lots of debates. I mean, there's a whole series of guesses as half a million years or perhaps even a million years old, but no one's really sure of the precise age because they're unable to date the finds. But they can safely say the presence of hippo teeth, therefore it must be extremely old. Now, Charles finally has the thing that'll put him on the map. And he's about to turn the entire scientific world on his head. That's after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It was one of those gray, wintry days in December when Charles and Arthur finally presented the fossils to the Geological Society. Charles had done this before with his previous findings, but this time was different. This time, the reaction was huge. The meeting in December 1912, where Woodward and Dawson present their results, is an explosive one because here they are presenting evidence of the first positively identified individual that's got both simian and human characteristics. It fitted that that sort of idea of someone who still looks like an ape, but has got a really enlarged brain case and is intelligent in his thinking. So that fitted the sort of Victorian, Edwardian mindset of what an early human looked like. This was a big deal because the theory of evolution was the hot new thing at the time. And Charles Darwin's most famous book on the origin of species had only been published 30 years prior. And that was presented as a theory. Here's now is the evidence that humans were descended from apes. It can no longer be questioned. Here is the archaeological evidence. So to have that in Britain, to have that so close to London, you know, this was an explosive find. It, it, it hit newspaper headlines all the way around the world at the time. The skull, jaw, and tools were gifted to the British Natural History Museum, where they were put on public display. And suddenly, everyone knew the names Charles Dawson and Arthur Woodward. Charles Dawson, it's fair to say, and, and Arthur Smith Woodward became major media celebrities. You know, their names were in, in the press. People wanted to interview them. Their, their pictures were in the press as well. So Dawson had gone from being quite a, a quiet country solicitor with no, you know, just a few limited series of contacts to somebody who's now on the global stage. Charles finally got the scientific recognition that he craved. There was no way people could call him an amateur after this and they'd be hard-pressed to try to keep him quiet in those geological meetings. Piltdown is less of a one-off. It's more his lifetime achievement. It's what his career's been building up to. Here is someone with no official scientific training, with no university education, but on the basis of his discovery, he is known around the world. He's being fated by all kinds of scientists, all kinds of universities, all kinds of institutions want to talk to him. He's introduced to the king. He's, you know, he's introduced to all members of, of nobility. He's suddenly moving in greater social circles. And from that point of view, he is advancing his career and he's advancing his family name. And it's not just the scientific community. Britain as a whole completely embraces the idea that it's home to the missing link. It shows that the UK is a significant part of human history and Piltdown Man is an international sensation. Dawson was still practicing as a solicitor, but more and more of his time was spent unearthing and promoting his scientific discoveries. There wasn't any money in it, but Dawson loved the attention. Then, in 1916, just four years after the unveiling of Piltdown Man, Charles Dawson died. I mean, the actual nature of his death is unclear, but it seems to be blood poisoning. 
Charles Dawson's solicitor's office had become less about legal cases and more like a science lab. He was constantly working on his discoveries. People who visit him say he's got all tubes and, and test tubes and Bunsen burners and he's boiling up chemicals and his whole office is just a huge fug of, of sort of dangerous chemicals and all this kind of, you know, that's all he seems to be doing. And he's doing that at home as well. Charles was using something called potassium dichromate to try and preserve his findings. Nowadays, it's used for painting and printing. But when this chemical is boiled, the gas it produces is highly dangerous. Large amounts of this stuff can cause lung cancer or kidney problems. The work that Charles Dawson had become so obsessed with was the same thing that ended him. But he's constantly sort of in, ingesting this dangerous chemical. And it's highly likely, given the circumstances of his death, that that's what actually killed him. So there is this sort of rather irony that in 1916, when Charles Dawson dies, Piltdown Man dies with him because no more discoveries are ever found. But around the world, new fossils were being discovered by different people in different countries. Like in 1925, when a fossilized skull was found in Johannesburg and suggested humans had originated in Africa. These new findings started to build a more accurate picture of evolution, a picture that really seemed to challenge the theories behind Piltdown Man. We now know that it's the face that changes first because people have got different kind of eating strategies, they're eating different foods, they're communicating more and more facially and, and sort of um, with, with the origins of language. And it's the face that changes first, becomes more human, and the brain changes far more slowly. The skull and jaw Charles Dawson had found suggested someone with a human-sized brain and ape-like facial features. And it's the face that changes first, becomes more human, and the brain changes far more slowly. So Piltdown's got those characteristics in the wrong order. As recognition grew for these new discoveries, more people in the scientific community started to suggest that Piltdown Man was a hoax. In fact, it kind of became a joke. More discoveries are being made, and eventually Piltdown becomes like a an embarrassing relative, you know, you, you never invite to Christmas or something, because people didn't want to talk about it anymore because it didn't fit the evolving understanding of what human characteristics were like. Despite what the global science community said, in Britain, the Piltdown Man findings continued to be embraced by both scientists and the public. There was skepticism, sure, but nothing was said publicly. You see, the British scientific community had a lot riding on the fossil's importance. And to the everyday British folks, Piltdown Man wasn't just some bones a guy in Sussex found. This was a national treasure. We're talking about a time when most European countries are rushing headlong into what becomes the first war, that sense of competition, scientific competition. But Piltdown's at exactly the right time and the right place. People would want it. It's good for patriotism, nationalism, scientific study. So imagine, after all that, respected British scientists standing up and demanding that we need to take a closer look at the veracity of the finding. Well, that's not an easy thing to do. The way in which other discoveries were being made made people question Piltdown, but not enough. I think that's the problem, is that so many careers were invested in the research around Piltdown that no one was prepared to put their hand up and say, actually, I think this is a fake, or I think there's a problem with this. That is, until 1944, when Arthur Woodward died. Now, no one from the original Piltdown Man team was alive and no one could protect its legacy. In 
but he's the last person who's really protecting the remains, who is stopping any kind of analysis. Perhaps there's a fear that if people look at it in detail, they will find problems with it. Well, that's exactly what happened. Coming up after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In 1950, six years after Arthur Woodward dies, the University of Oxford began an investigation of Piltdown Man. Three scientists got to work. Kenneth Oakley, Joseph Weiner, and Wilford LaGrosse Clark. And one of the first things that was conducted uh, at Oxford, they actually looked at the wear patterns on the teeth um, in the jaw and discovered that the, the abrasion had been all artificially induced. The scientists looked closely and realized that someone had altered the teeth and jaw of Piltdown Man. Someone had got an iron file, and they'd actually worn the teeth down to make them look more human. And what's crazy is that this could have been confirmed way back in 1912, but no one tried. Anybody with a a microscope who looked at those teeth would have seen the wear patterns on it, the abrasions, the scarring across the teeth. But no one had. Or if they had, they hadn't mentioned it because they didn't want to bring any other kind of element of doubt into the discovery. Now, whether they knew and didn't want to mention it or didn't know at all, at this point, it didn't matter. Because decades later, these three scientists had the technology to accurately determine how old the fossils were. It's called radiocarbon dating. Radiocarbon, or carbon-14, is found in all organic materials. It's in you, me, and Piltdown Man. You know, basically when something's alive, the levels of of carbon-14 in the bone and the atmosphere remain relatively stable. Once someone, once an animal, a human dies, that level starts decaying. And broadly speaking, the levels of decay are known and are quantifiable. So when you've got a bone, you can see how much re- uh, carbon-14 is in the bone. You can make a, a good, reasonable understanding of how, how long ago that particular animal, human, whatever, died. This new system found that Piltdown Man wasn't over half a million years old. Man, it wasn't even close. To radiocarbon dating uh, on the the jaw showed well it is a, an orangutan jaw, but it dates from somewhere between about sixteen hundred and nineteen hundred. It, it's a relatively recent bone. The skull itself is probably medieval. It's probably sort of thirteenth uh, or fourteenth century. I mean, how much of a letdown is that? Not only are these bones not prehistoric. It's like this dude took some chicken bones that people ate last week, dusted them off, scratched them up with a file, and called them revolutionary. Oh, and the other objects that were found with Piltdown Man? Well, they weren't legit either. And they definitely weren't from the same time period as the skull or the jaw. The flint tools that were part of the assemblage as well, when the staining was removed, they're actually from the chalk. 
They're from about 20, 30 miles away from a, a different site, but they've been made to look like they're part of the gravel assemblage. The hippo teeth are from a variety of different dates, but looking at those, they seem to actually, you know, they're, they're coming from Asia rather than actually from, from Sussex. Finally, it could be confirmed, everything about Piltdown Man was a complete and utter hoax. People talk about Piltdown Man as if it's some kind of major, um, sort of really clever forgery. It isn't. It's clever in the way that it gave people what they wanted and therefore they didn't question it. In 1953, the three scientists, Oakley, Weiner and Clark, published their findings. Shortly after, the British Natural History Museum put Piltdown Man into storage. It was a national embarrassment, but a scientific mystery that had lasted over 30 years was put to rest. The scientific community breathed a huge sigh of relief because Piltdown's been an anomaly for so long. They're actually quite pleased it's gone. You know, it doesn't fit the pattern that was appearing in other sites around the world. It doesn't seem to fit in the whole sort of nature of human evolution. Once you can prove it's a fake, brilliant, we can get rid of it. The scientific community might have been happy to see the last of Piltdown Man, but that discovery was just one part of Dawson's legacy. He had an entire lifetime of findings that had suddenly been called into question. Was any of it true? All of his discoveries, there's something dodgy about every single one of them. In 2016, scientists at the Natural History Museum decided to try and figure out how many people had been involved in creating Piltdown Man. They used new technology to show that this was a single perpetrator at work. The technology showed that one of the chemicals Charles supposedly used in his lab to preserve his findings, the very chemical that likely poisoned him, potassium dichromate, well, he was actually using it to doctor the bone. I mean, we now know that he was putting on the Piltdown bone to stain it, so all the assemblies looked like it had been in the gravel at the same time. The group published a paper of their findings in the Royal Society, the oldest scientific research archive in the world. Over 100 years after Piltdown Man was first discovered, Charles Dawson was publicly outed as the con artist behind the crime. And it wasn't just the Piltdown Man. Looking at things like um, you know, he discovered in, in 1895 um, a Roman statuette, which was supposed to be made of, of cast iron. In one of Charles's earliest finds, he claimed he had found evidence of cast iron from the Roman Empire. That's over 2,000 years ago. Analysis of it shows that it's actually a, it was made in the 19th century, and it's a hoax. And so now I'm beginning to think that this dude, Charles, is just picking up random stuff and saying, look, this is old. And actually, in total, British scientists now believe Charles was behind 38 different forgeries, including Piltdown Man. All these objects that he's he's made a career on, they're always presented to some important museum curator or scientist or someone within the scientific community. They're always a way of elevating Dawson's career and profile a little bit more, a little bit more. But once you start looking at them all, you can, you can discard every single one of them. They're all fakes. They're all, all fabrications. When Charles Dawson died in 1916, he didn't leave much behind. So it's hard to know exactly what his motivation was. We don't get that insight to the inner man. He's very secretive. I suppose that that highlights, you know, that, that's a product of the forger. You have to remain secretive. But he did offer England something important, global respect. 
They were making at that time major discoveries in human archaeology in France, in Germany, in Switzerland, in Africa, in Asia, not in Britain. If you traveled to England now and tried to see Piltdown Man, you wouldn't have much luck. It's a part of British history that's behind closed doors. If Piltdown it was effectively found anywhere else in the world, it was found in the USA or, or whatever, you'd, it would be a major thing. You know, you might even have a theme park around it, you have a museum, you'd have something. In Britain, there's this sense of, of embarrassment <laughs> about it. You know, here is something which at one stage we were elevating as a major find, and then it was turned out to be a hoax. So we just forget. It never happened. We we hide the finds. We forget about the site. I mean, Piltdown as a name, if you, if you visit the village today, you know, there's no major monument. So, Piltdown Man is no more. Hidden away, like that one sweatshirt you thought was amazing, but you realize it's ugly, but you don't want to throw it away. And it's interesting how quickly that happens. Pride often controls our emotions, or how we react to things. But there's also collective pride. Sometimes the real truth can be glaringly obvious, but the lie feels more comfortable and offers more benefits. There are so many examples of this around the world, one of which is how most Americans celebrate Columbus Day, even though it's generally accepted that this guy didn't discover America because people were already here. There were doubts about Piltdown Man from the beginning, but this discovery catapulted England to the forefront of science, and that translated to national pride, so much so that it took decades before defeat was accepted by British society. So don't that tell you something? Pride can be pretty damn dangerous. As always, thanks for listening. And just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we like to have more listeners. So don't keep us to yourself. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like cheap, but a little better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without listening to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free right now. Next time on Cheat. He came up with this idea of basically serving as the kind of air traffic controller of Santa Ladders. I don't know that he had walked into this originally expecting this to be a big uh, cash cow. I think he thought that this was a great opportunity for publicity and that actually would do uh, good things. But uh, once he started to see the checks that were getting cut, he started to find other ways to generate more money. Cheat is presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Olivia Cope. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Megan Dietrich. The original idea for the show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering and sound design by Sam Baer. Our production coordinator is Ike Egbatola. Special thanks to Sony Legal Team. <laughs>